You're listening to Making Money Online with Lisa Johnson, the podcast that tells you what it really takes to build a business and the simple steps to get you there. I'm determined to share with you the reality of easy, simple business marketing tips to make passive income so that you can start making money online. Making Money Online is sponsored by Nicola J. Rowley PR, helping entrepreneurs and brands get visible through strategic storytelling. If you're serious about being seen and impacting the lives of others, harnessing the power of PR is the best way to grow and scale your business. Visit njrpr.com for more details and read Nicola's best-selling book, The Power of PR. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. It's going to be an interesting one this week. Lots of people um, who are my clients talk to me about the issues that they have had learning because their brains might not work the same way. We all have different brains and we all work in different ways. And, um, you know, I have from from neurodiverse to to very neurocomplex clients. And it's why, as a training provider, we try and do things a little bit differently so that more people can access the training we have. Today, I want to talk to Sarah Kedge. So Sarah helps corporate leaders with complex people problems to make meaningful change that goes beyond box ticking, which we've all seen happen, so that they can create inclusive, healthy, and more productive workplaces. So it's a win-win situation. So welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell me why you specialize in this. What happened in your life that you realized people need help? Well, so, so my diagnosis happened quite late on in life. I, I was always aware that my brain didn't quite work in the same way as other people. And I just kind of worked around it. And it was when I was doing my master's in business administration that I was really struggling to engage with the online platform called Moodle. And I'd missed a couple of deadlines. I couldn't find the library. And I went to my academic tutor and said, look, I know I'm struggling with this platform. Can you sit down with me for half an hour and tell me where I need to find things? And they passed me to the library and the library couldn't help me. So they passed me to somebody else and then somebody else. And all I wanted was somebody to sit with me for half an hour and just say, click this button here. Blah, blah, blah. And it got to the point where I ended up at student support services and they said, oh, well, you probably need a diagnosis because you sound like you've got some kind of difficulty. And at that point, I was so cross because all I wanted was somebody to sit down with me for half an hour. I mean, I was 36 at the time. I'd ha- I'd got um, I'd already got my master's in law. Yeah, it's not like you weren't smart. It was very obvious you were smart. But, but it all I wanted. So at that point, I was so cross. I'm like, right stuff you, I'm going to go and get a diagnosis. So I did, and I sought myself out a private diagnosis, and it came out that I was profoundly dyspraxic. Tell me Um, what dyspraxic is, because I've not heard of it. Dyspraxia is also known as developmental coordination disorder. So the, 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 um, the hero manifestation of this is that my brain doesn't tell my body where it is in relation to the built environment. So I'm terribly clumsy. Um, I have to concentrate a lot more than a neurotypical person on um, what they call fine motor coordination, writing, sewing, doing that sort of thing. It also comes with emotional dysregulation, um, challenges in processing information. So if you give me instructions um, to build, um, I don't know, a bookcase, it will take me a lot longer to read the information and understand what it is is being asked to do. 
Yeah. So and is it like during your life? Yeah. Did this? How did this show itself? Like, did you know? Like, were you like, well, hold on a minute. Why is this difficult? There were times, so with the emotional dysregulation, I knew because teachers and friends and family went, so my emotional dysregulation shows up as I will feel something really intensely. So if I'm angry, I'll get really very angry for a very short amount of time and then it just disappeared. <laughs> and, and my friends didn't do this. So people, you know, when I was working uh, one of my previous incarnations, I, um, I'm a hairdresser and master barber. And there was one instance when in the salon where something happened and I got cross and apologised and did whatever needed to be done. Then I was gone. But everybody around me is like, why are you not cross anymore? And I'm like, well, because I've felt the cross and it's it's gone. And everybody else was sort of like confused. And there were times in my corporate life, there was one time where I had to do some Excel spreadsheet manipulation. So I had to take information from one spreadsheet and put it onto another and do some analysis. And I sent it off to my boss and he came back to me and said, I don't know what you were looking at. But the numbers you put in bear no resemblance to the numbers you should have done. So there were always little hints along the way that there was something going on that wasn't quite right. But we never know, do we? So we don't go, oh, I'll go and get a diagnosis for something because we don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Like, I wouldn't know if that happened to me. Like, oh, it could be dyspraxia. Like, I would never know that that was a thing. No. And because um, because I, and this is the same for most neurodivergent people, which is why there are so many of us that are realising later in life, is because, and I call them requests to modify. So throughout our lives, we're given requests to modify. Inside voice, Sarah, will you pay attention? Look at me when I'm talking to you. Um, why can't you just, could you, you know, the, if you go back to my school records, it said she would do good if she applied herself. If she followed instructions as they were giving, she would do much better. In hindsight, when you look at all of these little things, it, it tells a story. Yeah. And it's often not until a point when you get to a critical point, for me, it was during my MBA, where it was, it was, there was no avoiding it anymore. Right, I'm going to go and get a diagnosis. How hard was it to get that diagnosis? Um, I was really fortunate because I was in a privileged position that I had some money and I was earning, I was working as a consultant at the time, so I could go out and spend, the, I think it was 450 quid at that time. Um, and I had a network, so I was able to reach out and say, look, I need a an adult diagnosis. So I was I'm really fortunate to be able to go and do that. So I had quite an easy ride. For other adults, it's much more difficult because the NHS has quite an extensive waiting list for ADHD and autism. Um, for dyspraxia, it's even more difficult because it's not one of the um, better known neurodivergences. Yeah. So for me, it was quite easy. For other people, it can be, it can take years, which is not brilliant, but it's... It is what it is, I guess, yeah. It's, I suppose the difficulty is also, it takes a while to get your head around even wanting to get a diagnosis because nobody wants to feel like they're different in, in any way. And so they don't really want to go and get that diagnosis. It's something kind of triggers that you have to. I think it's easier when you've got a kid because then you're, you're an adult and you know you want that diagnosis to get help for your child. But as an adult, I think it's much harder to decide those things. And it's many, many times, many of the people in my community will will come in or start their, their awareness journey because their children have got a dyslexia or an ADHD diagnosis. And when they go through the report, they're saying, you know, your child struggles with A, B, C and D. They go, oh, that sounds a bit like me. And at that point, the pennies start to drop. And, and the thing is, it, the, it is difficult because the awareness journey isn't just diagnosis. There are sort of stages and people think, well, 
when the awareness comes in, they start going and doing some research on the internet. They listen to some podcasts, watch some reels, and then they sort of start to build the awareness in themselves that the things that they struggle with, other people struggle with too, and that there is a name for this. Yeah. At that point, some people stop and go, actually, that's enough. I can then just live with myself knowing this information. For others, they then seek a diagnosis. And at that time, many people get to the point of going, when I get my diagnosis, that's going to be it. That's the end of my journey. But actually, how does that solve anything? A diagnosis in itself doesn't really do anything. For some people, it gives validation. Because if you've done all this research and you identify yourself as being autistic or ADHD, it can give, the diagnosis can give validation. So it's not just me, somebody outside of me with a, with a white coat and a certificate on the wall says that I am these things. Yeah. What it then does is it, it then can trigger, I almost talk about it in the, in the Kubler-Ross grief cycle stage, because up until that point, you've just been muddling through, dealing with the request to modify, finding ways around and all, alternative ways of hiding and masking the things you struggle with and then you almost go into this period it's like denial it's not me no they're wrong they're not really the right type of diagnosis did you see that panorama program that said all these things are a sham and then you move into this almost angry shoulda woulda coulda if I'd known this earlier I could have done better at school I should have had the support I would have done made different decisions in my life and then you go into this sort of depression because you then think of all the things you might have missed and people then think about all the things um that were difficulty the relationships that either broke down or had difficulties in them and it, had they known this piece of information they, they might know have why yeah they approach things differently when, when they did it with you hmm. like you obviously got your diagnosis yeah you went back I'm presuming to that student support and said, yeah. no. what did they do? Well, I was in, what did they do? They said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I then went and I went, then did my sort of normal thing, went to research, right. With a, with a neurodiversity, you get a blue card, which then means you get additional time on your exams. It means you get um, additional support. You get people to do all these things. And I'm like, right, okay. So you pushed me into a position of doing this, didn't really want to do it. But now you're going to give me all the things. And at that point, it was quite a ragey, angry, you're going to give me all the things. In hindsight, it then gave me the things that I needed to level the playing field. So, for example, my accountancy exam, I've already said, accountancy is processing numbers and taking information from a spreadsheet and putting them somewhere else and doing something with them. Had I not had the extra time in my exam, I never would have passed that exam. It's not because I didn't understand the concepts. It's not because I couldn't work it out. It just took my brain a little bit longer to work that out. Yeah, so it did. It, that's what it does. It levels a playing field so that you are on the same, you know, same ability as other people. Um, and so it makes everything fairer. So you now help others yep. in corporate to level that playing field. Yep. <clears throat> I talk about it in terms of removing hostility because most organisations don't, recognize that for neurodivergent brains going into the workplace can be quite difficult and it is hostile so and when people go into a workplace they're having to put on a, a mask of being normal and for some people that will be having to engage in social com conversation and communication where that's not how they're naturally comfortable or it's quite difficult for them. So for dyslexic and autistic people there can be a longer processing time 
which makes conversations difficulty. So if I ask you a question, a neurotypical or an ADHD brain might be going bing, 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 and be able to respond quite quickly. For other neurodivergent people, it takes time for that information to process, to be able to work out what they want to say, and then to find the language to get it out. And that's quite difficult. So for some neurodivergent people, their coping strategy is, right, I'm going into the office today and I've got a meeting with Helen. And Helen, I know, has dogs. So I'll ask them a question about dogs. And the last time I spoke to Helen, they asked me about this. So I need to prepare and answer the questions to do that. So before you even go into the workplace, you've already got all this intellectual and emotional heavy heavy lifting. Happening, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that with for neurodivergent people, we tend not to stay in employment for long amounts of time because we are constantly doing this additional heavy lifting to be able to function and look as if we are a normal human being. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all that so many entrepreneurs are neurodiverse. If you're neurodivergent, you are 98% more likely to run your own business than a neurotypical person. And that's because we get to design a workplace that works with our own rhythms and patterns rather than what we were told to do, which is we are told to pay attention between Monday and Friday, between 9am and 5pm. And for an ADHD brain, that can be really painful because they might have spurts of energy and attention that start at 11 o'clock in the morning. But you still have to be at your desk for nine o'clock in the morning where your attention is not there or you're not focused. And that could be quite that. So when I talk about the hostilities, it's those things. It's like, well, why do I need to be at my desk at nine? If I've got if I've got a task to do, does it matter that it starts at 11? Really? It's better for the workplace to think like this because then, then they're more likely to get the best out of their employees than it being like walking through treacle. Yeah. yeah no, absolutely. And, uh, the, and the resistance comes from where we're told what business should look like. We are told it's Monday to Friday, nine to five. We have to be at our desk. We have to have standard levels of energy and attention. And working with corporates, it's sort of saying, actually, how about you flip that over and and work with the needs of that employee so that you get the best out of them? Yeah. It's not about giving people permission to do no work. It's about helping the organization to understand there might be a different way that means that that person's excellence and expertise and knowledge can be tapped into greater so you get more out of them. And they, and they will get more out of them. Like, that's how my business operates. And mm. and since we have kind of had this whole flexible, you know, instead of people saying that I'm not going to work between this hour and this hour, I'm, I, I really do not care. Like, mm. you know how you do the job best. Mm-hmm. You do it your way. I'm not micromanaging you. Um, mm-hmm. And since we did that and we did, you know, had the four day week and just made things really, really flexible on how people want to work rather than how a business should work. It's made a massive difference to productivity. And actually mm-hmm. people, they work more anyway when they're working happily. And this is the thing. If you, because what uh, what we're told is we go to work to earn money, but actually most people don't do that. They go to work because they believe in the mission, the vision, and the values of the organisation that they're working for. So you've already got them in the door, and the compensation isn't just the money they get out, but it's the it's the knowing that they're doing a good job, that they're helping the the people or the communities or the businesses that that organization is serving. So if you tap into that, 
do you then get more out of your employees? You also get fewer employees leaving, you, which means you save money. It's it's one of these, like it's a win-win situation for everybody. What's your resistance when you go into a corporate company and you're like, this is how I can help you with your employees? What's their resistance? The resistance is often well, we need to take this through such and such a committee or we need to have a paper and it needs to go up the food chain and we need to do this and we need to do that before we can make any change. That's their resistance. And what my approach is, okay, I hear that with the big things. Well, how about we start with the small things? What's the one thing within your remit and your scope of authority that you can make a change in? And let's start there because that's going to take months and that's fine what's the one thing that you can do today that's going to make a difference? And it might be something as simple as left justifying their documents or their promotional materials. That's important for dyslexic people and dyspraxic people because, as I said, with dyspraxia, my body doesn't tell my brain where it is. So with if you centrally justify a piece of language, the start of the words do that. Wow, that's so interesting. So when I read long, my brain then has to do extra work to work out where the start of the next sentence is. Right. Whereas if it's all left justified, I don't have to do that thinking. I just go back to the beginning. I don't miss words. So something as simple as that can remove a hostility and additional heavy lifting out of somebody's life. And it's not necessarily things that if you do not suffer from any kind of neurodiversity, it's not a thing you'd think about or even know about. So these are just education pieces that people need. And actually, if we think about this, it isn't just the big corporates that need to do these kind of things. It's it's small companies. It's, you know, very, I have a company with only 10 employees, but these are things that I think everyone should be able to know about. And when I work with, so so corporates is a big lump of my work. My other side of my work is working with entrepreneurs and small business owners. And it is because when you work with small business owners, you come out of corporate and you, you, you start a business and you want to tell the world what you do. And what I try and encourage my, my, my clients to think about is, no, 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 it's, it's, it's almost that marketing. Don't tell me what you do. Tell me this problem you solve. Because no, none of my clients have ever Googled, I want a neurodivergent business coach. <laughs> In the history of ever, has anybody actually done that? But what they do want is they want to learn to live a life without burnout. They want to design a business that works for them. They want to spend more time with their family. Those are the things. So we sort start switching over and think, what is it the clients need? Yeah. And then for non-neurodivergent business owners, it's saying, okay, so you need a process to get your clients through the door. At the moment, your process and system works for you because uh, talk about coaching, you need to, you want to have a discovery call and then you follow that up with an email. Then you follow that up with a contract. Then you follow it up with your terms and conditions. And then you, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. all of these steps make logical sense to the business owner. But, but not necessarily to the client. There you go. So it's flipping it over and going, what does the client want? At the point the client contacts you, they want an appointment with you. The paperwork is important to you. It's not important to them. So how can you design your system of getting your clients into your business that removes all the friction and the touch points that you think are important, but is going to potentially for a dyslexic person, if you send me lots of paperwork, I'm not going to read it. 
if you send me um, lots of information where I need to go here, there and the other place and sign things, I'm not going to do it. And you're moving clients away from you. So how do you design the process of getting client into your business and keeping them there that removes the hostility and the friction? Yeah, it's really interesting how you name it that. Because most people don't think of it like that, but it is. It's a hostility. It's an obstacle that for some people are going to mean they they just stop. Simple things, really simple thing. You know when you're designing your website and you're doing all super snazz things and you're putting your buttons? Yeah. If you put click here, some neurodivergent people won't click there because they don't know what's behind that. And there is a neurodiversity tax. So from all of the neurodivergent people have had times where we've clicked a button and all of a sudden money's gone out of our bank and we didn't realise that that was a buy now button. Or we've forgotten to cancel a, um, a membership or a subscription and then money's just leeching out of our bank. So putting something as simple as click here for neurotypical people, and, and actually when you design your website, actually you do want them to click here. If you change it, the language from click here to book an appointment button, it tells me what's behind it. Yeah. Terms and conditions tells me what's behind it. It removes the guesswork. Yeah, so it's just about doing things in a different way that give more information to the people that need it. it absolutely. And it, and it removes us because what we know is that around 50% of people who are neurodivergent don't know it yet. Yeah, they don't know it yet. Most of my clients don't. While they're working with me, they realise it. But yeah, they don't know it. So, so, so it's this inclusion that's baked into how you do business. And I come from a neurodiversity perspective, but every time you do something like that, you're also removing hostility for people that might have visual impairments, who might have cultural differences, language differences, because you're doing something that doesn't just benefit the neurodivergent community, but it makes everybody's life easier. Yeah, which in turn makes your business make more money. <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. And that's the point. Amazing. Such a lot, it's such a lot of small bits of information that we can all do. And I think that's really important because sometimes when we think about being more inclusive, we think it's going to be this massive project that's going to change our business. It's going to cost us loads of money. And actually everything you've told us today are just small things that we can do very quickly that will make a difference. And this is one of my bugbears around the inclusive thing, because when you look at inclusive practitioners, they talk about doing big projects and doing all these schemes and doing all this stuff. And for somebody who's at, um, at an early stage in their inclusion journey, that's overwhelming. So it's like it goes into the box of too hard. And actually, the, the inclusion and the next thing is, I don't want to upset somebody. It's too hard and I don't want to offend somebody. So I'm going to do nothing. And actually, that's worse than trying something and not getting it right. Of course. And many of my business owners that I talk to, it's like, well, I don't want to do that because I, and if I do this, it might upset. And I do understand that because I felt that. Like, yeah, but then I'm going to annoy some people and I might do it wrong. And then everyone's going to have a go at me and say it's, I had, I mean, I have that on quite a lot of times where I feel like I don't want people to think this is tokenism, so I'm not going to do this. I don't want people to think I'm doing this for them and not for other people, so I'm not going to do that. There's several times where I, I do have those worries and I see that my clients do too. Yeah. Look, you will upset somebody. It's a given. You will. 
I put she, her on my 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 Zoom. You won't see, but when I go onto Zoom, I've got she, her. They're my pronouns. Yeah, it makes no difference to me. What it signals is to trans and non-binary community that I see you. However, putting that there will upset the turf community because they have a different perspective. Right. In the autistic community, there is a discussion that's going on. Am I autistic? Am I a person with autism? So there's a person first diagnosis first. So whether you, whichever type of language you use, there will be somebody who's upset by it. Right. What's more important is that you become aware of something and you do your thinking. You think, actually, how important is it? And if I use the example of using women's group, Mm-hmm. There's many um, entrepreneurs set up groups and they target their avatars being women. Yeah. From a gender perspective, are you talking about cis women? So people assigned female at birth. Are you talking cis women plus trans women and non-binary people or not? Yeah. And, and it's okay to have a women's group. The important thing is that you've done your thinking. What is important about women? Is it actually all women or is it just cis women? And then as long as you've done your thinking, you can then go when somebody comes to challenge you say, you're right, I have got a women's group. And the reason I've got a women's group is because of these things. Yeah. So it's the thinking that goes behind it, which is as important as the thing that you do. No, that makes complete sense. And the wonderful thing about the inclusion journey is you can't do it all. You really can't do it. It's too much, Yeah. It is. All you can do to be a really good ally is to committing yourself to every time you become aware of something, to do your thinking and to make an alteration. So, for example, I came aware of the language of um, digital black facing. Okay. It was last week. And I came across this piece of language and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So it's the it's using GIFs, memes, other visuals that are a person of color to express an emotion. But the impact of that emotion is you are either creating or securing or perpetuating a stereotype of a person of color of being certain types of characteristics. Okay. New piece of language to me. Hadn't even yeah, thought I'd about I'd never heard of it. So now I know about it. I've done some reading. I'm doing some thinking. And I'll be more mindful about the choices that I'm making when I'm expressing emotion through gifts or memes or other things. Yeah. So you're always going to learn something new. And I've been doing EDI, Equality, Diversity, Inclusion stuff for donkey's years. And I'm still learning. still learning. And the good thing about that is exactly what you just said. You think about it. You've got your reasoning behind the things you're doing. And you either make changes if, if necessary, or you at least have had the thoughts behind it to decide that you're not making changes for whatever reason. Um, and that's what we need to do. I think that's really, really important. And it means that we can all do something. And there's the permission to get it wrong. Yeah. Because you, as I said, you will upset somebody as long as you are doing your thinking, as long as you're sort of understanding the reasons that someone's challenging you to then do something a bit better the next time. It's, it's an incremental thing. It's a bit better. Every yeah. time I do something would be a bit better. I'm going to be a bit better again. And that's where, that's what actual allyship is. That's yes. where you become truly inclusive because you're continuing to grow. It's not a tick box where you just do something and you say, hey, we're now inclusive. It doesn't work that way. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> and there are things that people can do, like particularly, you know, celebrating um, Pride Month and Black History Month and those things, which can tip into performative allyship. But what that also does is it says to people of difference that, 
I see you and I'm considering you and I'm thinking about you. It also tells me as a neurodivergent person, if you've got a disability two ticks um, award, I expect more from you. So my standard and threshold of what I expect from you is going to be better and different. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for teaching us this today. It's been really, really interesting. Um, Definitely given me food for thought, and I'm sure it has a lot of other people as well. If Mm. people want to come to you to learn how to do more of this and how they can start their journey into being more inclusive, where's the best place for them to come? You can drop into my website, sarahkedge.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm just starting TikTok. It's terrible. (laughs) I'm just starting TikTok. Um, and on Facebook, if you Facebook, I'm it's Sarah Kedge all across the board. Um, if you're a neurodivergent entrepreneur and you want to come into a room with other neurodivergent entrepreneurs who support and and will guide you through it, that's how to with the number two entrepreneur. And that's a community. It's a free community. You can come in and just that's how you find me, really. Fantastic. We'll put all of those links in the show notes. Um, But thank you for being here today and sharing your wisdom with us. And thank you, everybody, for listening and um, hopefully taking some of this stuff on board. And I'm giving you permission to get it wrong because I never give myself permission to get it wrong. And I've just been given permission. And so I'm giving that to you as well. We have to just try and make small changes, um, just one step at a time. And if we all do that, think of the difference that we can make. Okay, I will see you next week for another episode of Making Money Online. Thank you for listening to Making Money Online with Lisa Johnson. If you'd like to get hold of my guide to launching, go to lisajohnson.com forward slash launch and let's get you making money online.